This morning we have Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 14 through 17. And I'm very grateful that there are no hard names in this one. <laughs> Elder, uh, Elder Larkin had it tough this morning. Uh, so uh, praise God for, uh, for some simple language here. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Uh, hear now the word of God. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, you have set your glory in the heavens, and uh, the sun runs his course like a champion as he goes about uh, the arena, shining forth his glory. And so, Lord, your glory shines forth in the creation now as we are here worshiping you on this beautiful day. But at the same time, Lord, we know that a greater light shines in your word, the light of the revelation of your glory in Christ by the Spirit. And so we pray that you would shine this brilliant and glorious light upon our hearts, that you would bid the darkness to flee, that you would enable us to repent of our sin, and that through the life-giving light of your word that you would give unto us greater sanctity and holiness, that you would give unto us eternal life and that you would bring forth your glory, that we would be filled with praise for you, our triune God. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned uh, in weeks prior, uh, there was a number of years ago where my wife and I went on a hiking trip in the high Sierra Nevadas. It was a a beautiful trip. It was over nine days. The elder that uh, led that trip asked me if I would serve as the pastor because it was over a Sunday. So I said, sure, I'd be, I'd be happy to do it. My wife had gone on this trip uh, on two previous occasions. It was an opportunity to be able to see some of those beautiful parts of our country that are essentially really untouched by uh, any human being. Uh, we were above the tree lines, and uh, you, know, you had the snow-capped mountains. You had beautiful lakes, and uh, it was just a beautiful uh, time and place to, uh, to be able to experience That being said, it was an interesting thing to observe. I always tell people, don't hang out with pastors. Uh, Don't hang out with pastors. You will inevitably end up as a sermon illustration. Uh, And this is certainly the case uh, with this trip, as as, as I was there on this trip, there were a number of college students, and they were all cheery and sunny, and they were happy. Uh, And uh, that was the way it all started off on the first day of the trip. Uh, But let's say you get five, six days in, Nobody's showering, uh, you know, th- you got blisters, uh, maybe you're not resting so well because the ground was a little bit hard last night, and all of a sudden, some of those smiles begin to evaporate under the mild adversity that you find on this particular type of adventure. Well, the question that I would want to pose as I observed all of this, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, we had some of these, uh, you know, sm- modest trials thrust upon us, 
is, did these circumstances on this trip, did it make character or did it reveal it? Did it make character or did it reveal it? And in all honesty, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, I had my grumpy moment or two, and I would say that it revealed my grumpiness and my grouchiness, not that it made me grumpy or grouchy. But I think that we began to see that with some of these young people, it was revealing their character. You shine a little bit of light of adversity upon them, and it shows you who they are when it, uh, you peel away the makeup, when you peel away uh, the showers, when you peel away uh, a square, three squares a day, all of a sudden maybe a bit of who they really are begins to emerge. Well, it's a similar type of circumstance that I think unfolds here uh, in the passage before us as the author of Hebrews shines the light of God's revelation upon the life of one Old Testament person and that is the person of Esau. Esau was tired and hungry, and the decisions that he made on that particular day of his hunger, we could say quite literally, echo forever on into eternity. And in this particular case, I want to say that the circumstances that drove him to make the decisions that he made on that fateful day were not decisions that made him that day, but rather revealed his character. And so this is why the author of Hebrews appeals to the person of Esau to teach his recipients, as well as to teach us, about our utter and continual need for the gospel of Christ and the salvation that comes only through him. And that in the face of their trials, as well as we can add in the face of our own, that we must cling to Christ. We must cling to Christ. And even though Esau is one person, we can say this, and we might not often see it, is that in Hebrews chapter 11, we see the great hall of faith, where you see all of these Old Testament saints who trusted in the promise of the gospel, and how in spite of adversity, they held fast to Christ. Well, we can contrast and say that what the author of Hebrews does here as we look now at Esau, is that granted he's only one person, but we can say that he is perhaps an archetypal person that features in the great hall of shame. In other words, he contrasts Esau's character and actions with the character and actions and especially the faith of all of the saints in Hebrews chapter 11. So what we see here with Esau is the antithesis, the opposite, the inverse of the great hall of faith. And so what we want to do first is we want to backpedal and and go to the Old Testament so that we can reflect a little bit upon the events of that fateful day where Esau did the things to which the author draws our attention. Secondly, we want to give thought to what the author means when he talks about and warns us against the root of bitterness uh, taking uh, hold in our hearts. And then third and finally, we want to think about why it is and to what end the author says that we must live our Christian lives, which is in the pursuit of peace and holiness, the pursuit of peace and holiness. So let's give thought first here to Esau. And that in the biblical history, when we go back to the Old Testament, I think we could say that one of the most iconic moments... One of the most iconic moments is when Esau sold his birthright to Jacob, his brother, for a bowl 
of lentil stew. Now, we likely know the story well. Each of the brothers were doing things that were fitting for their respective characters. We know that Esau was a ruddy and hairy man, and so he was kind of a man's man. And uh, he was off in the wilderness hunting game. And, uh, you know, when you go off and hunt game, uh, sometimes if you don't think ahead, you may not take provisions with you. So which means if he's out there a long time, he did not have anything to eat. But nevertheless, he's doing something that is fitting to his character. He's hunting. Jacob, on the other hand, was uh, a little bit... uh, closer to his mom, tied to the apron strings, if you will. And so he was cooking some food as he preferred to stay among the tents, is what the narrative tells us in Genesis chapter 25. And so he's there cooking his lentil stew. Esau was off hunting and he returned exhausted and famished and he spies out the lentil stew. And so Jacob saw his opportunity. He saw his opportunity. And in the narrative in Genesis chapter 25, verse 31, we we get the words reported very tersely and very directly. So that if we were to maybe read between the lines, it's almost as if Jacob is saying somewhat with a twinkle in his eye, sell me your birthright now. You know, he sees his opportunity. He sees his opportunity. Sometimes maybe you've been at a garage sale or uh, you've been uh, in a a store and you see something for a really good price and you know its value, you know that it's underpriced. And so you, as nonchalantly as possible, but as quickly as possible, say, sure, I'll take it. I think this is what Jacob sees. He sees his opportunity and so he wants to seize the moment. Sell me your birthright now. Now, at first glance, we may not see and understand the significance of everything that's unfolding, let alone what Jacob was seeking. He wanted Esau's birthright. And in our own context, in our own culture, that may not seem like much. You know, nowadays, uh, you know, it seems that equity, fairness, even Stephen is the way that most inheritances go. In other words, uh, if there are three children, then... Uh, The the parents leave the inheritance, often say, divided into thirds. You get 33%, you get 33%, you get 33%. In other words, we have to do things fairly and equitably. But in the ancient world, this was not the case, in that unto the firstborn, unto the firstborn, the, 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 the inheritance was supposed to go in a double portion to the firstborn. So if there are two children two sons in this particular case, Esau was entitled to 66% of the inheritance, and Jacob, just by virtue of being born second, was only entitled to the remainder of the uh, 34%. So 66% and 34% because he's the second born. So that at a minimum, we know that Jacob is interested in his brother's birthright because there's the double portion of the inheritance. The double portion of the inheritance. But this isn't all that Jacob has in view. He's not just interested in money. Rather, as we know from the rest of the Jacob narratives, he's interested in securing the blessings of the covenant. He wants the blessings of the covenant. 
We know, for example, and he would have undoubtedly been aware of the fact that Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And to Ishmael, none of the covenant blessings went. And all of the covenant blessings went to Isaac. So he wasn't merely pursuing a legal title. He's not merely pursuing uh, uh, a, um, you know, an earthly or temporal blessing. Moreover, in our own day, we might not also understand the nature of this particular transaction. You know, we think, well, uh, how many people say, oh, I'll be there at six o'clock. Oh, something's come up. I can't make it. Or perhaps in the business world, uh, okay, sure, I'll do this. I'll meet this price. And then you call up and say, okay, I want to take it at that price. Oh, sorry, that was yesterday. Things have changed today. You know, or even worse, you make a legal agreement and you sign it and then you go to hold the person accountable and they're like, yeah, I can't do it and uh, I'm going to sue you uh, because I'm going to do everything I can to get out of my commitment. Not so in the ancient world. In the ancient world, your oath is your bond. Those words are ironclad. Those words are ironclad. So once the words were spoken... And Esau said, fine, you can have my birthright, but give me the stew. The deal is done. Not only has he lost the double portion of the inheritance, he has lost the covenant blessing. Now, at this particular point, it might not necessarily strike us as all that significant. It might not strike us as being all that important, let alone foolish, let alone foolish. You know, I mean, at one level we might say, well, to trade your birthright for a bowl of lentil stew, that that seems kind of foolish. But maybe he was just really hungry. And I would say, no, I've tasted lentil stew. It's not that good. Not worth it, right? Don't get me wrong. The wife has served lentils before and I'm happy to eat them. But it's not worth my birthright. No, not going to happen on that. And and, and if you think about it, moreover, how long really would it have taken Esau? If Jacob is is, is making the lentils too, that means the fire's going. And uh, if Esau is really the skilled hunter that we know him to be, now I'm about to describe this in complete, total, ignorant layman terms. In other words, I've never dressed an animal in my life. But I suspect he could have easily just hacked off a part, stripped it down, dressed it, thrown it on the fire, and in a matter of minutes, he could have had some cooked game and he could have satisfied his hunger. Maybe what, an hour, 90 minutes tops? For those of you who hunt and do such things, you can correct me after the worship service. But I'm just assuming, let's say two hours max. You can go without food for literally for a month. Not water, but food, without food for a month. So Esau, at a minimum, is really foolish to trade his birthright. But notice how the author of Hebrews characterizes his his activity. It's not simply foolishness. It's not simply short-sightedness, but it's immorality. He says in chapter 12, verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. He calls him unholy. 
Now, we might not say, well, is he really unholy? Well, that's where we have to peel away and look past the practical. In other words, he could have cooked a meal relatively quickly. But we also have to uh, strip away and look at the theological. He sold his interest in the gospel promises of God in Christ for a bowl of stew. That's why he's unholy. He did not believe. He traded eternal life for a bowl of stew. And so here, this is what the author is doing. Notice what the author of Hebrews is doing. If he turns to the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and he says, look to what these saints did, how they suffered, and in spite of their suffering, they held fast to Christ. Conversely, he's saying, look what this foolish, immoral person Esau did, and that he traded salvation for a bowl of stew. Don't do that. Don't walk away from the gospel for some sort of fleeting temporal peace, which for all intents and purposes might as well be a bowl of lentils. And so what he's doing here is the author is doing something I think very shrewd and insightful, is he is telling his, his, uh, his recipients, step into Esau's shoes for a moment so that you can see his foolishness and his unbelief so clearly so that that puts your own potential foolishness in a better light. In other words, so that you can understand it. You know, one of the best ways to learn something is to step outside of your situation. I've mentioned this before that the best way that I ever learned English grammar was by studying other languages. You know, when I went to seminary to study Greek, I did not know my English grammar, and I rude the day that I didn't pay attention in third grade. There I was, a grown man, thinking, why didn't I pay attention in third grade? What's, what's an adverb? I don't know. It wasn't until I stepped out of English into Greek that I began to learn more about English. C.S. Lewis, John Bunyan, uh, Dante, uh, uh, Chaucer, uh, all of these people, all of these writers create stories where you step out of your own world into another world so that you can see your own world in a clearer light. So this is why he gives us Esau. Step into Esau's shoes where you can see the foolishness so clearly so that we don't do the same. He also calls him sexually immoral because if you remember, he married five Hittite women. In other words, five Gentiles, five unbelieving women. And this stands in stark contrast to Abraham, who literally went to great lengths to ensure that the wife for his son, Isaac, would be one who would have interest in the covenant promises. In other words, to put it in in theological terms, that she was a Christian. Esau's sexual immorality was simply the poisonous fruit that grew from his root of unbelief, the unbelief in his heart. And then even when Esau sought to regain the birthright from his father, we know that he was ultimately only seeking temporal and earthly blessings. Verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He was upset that he lost the blessing He lost 
the two-thirds of the inheritance. But he was not truly repentant because he was unholy. He was sexually immoral. And the life that he lived showed his immorality and his lack of interest in the promise of the gospel in spades. And so within the context of Hebrews, Esau's conduct stands in stark contrast to the saints that we see in chapter 11. In short, the saints of chapter 11 had faith in the gospel of Christ. Esau, on the other hand, didn't. Which brings us to our second point, which is wanting to understand better the nature of the root of bitterness. And that the key issue, I think, that the author draws our attention to is to understand the nature of our hearts so that we can diagnose them. What was Esau's chief problem? It was unbelief. What was the poison fruit of his unbelief? Bitterness. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And we may not recognize it immediately, but the author here is drawing from uh, language that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 18 and 19, where where, uh, Moses in Deuteronomy describes uh, the nature of this root of bitterness. Listen carefully when Moses writes, he says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and to serve the gods of those nations. So notice he's saying, beware of those who are turning away from the Lord to serve other gods. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, look at Esau. He walked in the stubbornness of his heart. He traded his interest in the gospel for a bowl of stew. He let his belly be his God. His temporal comfort was of greater concern to him than his eternal destiny. And so here, the author of Hebrews takes this root of bitterness language and he brings it to our attention to remind us so that we would understand that we would not allow the root of bitterness to grow in our hearts. Again, he draws their attention, he draws our attention to the Old Testament so that we can step outside of our own situation to see it from a different vantage point so that we can understand our own circumstances with greater clarity. Esau's unbelief fueled his immorality. Israel's unbelief would be the source of their idolatry. And so likewise, apostasy and turning away from Christ sows seeds of bitterness and idolatry in the hearts of those who turn away. And in the case of the recipients of Hebrews, if they turned away from Christ, they would have a temporal peace. But that peace that they would enjoy the cessation of persecution, the cessation of their trials, of their troubles, would be like that bowl of lentil stew. Esau satisfied his hunger that day. But what happened? That next morning, he woke up hungry. He woke up hungry because he sought something that could only satisfy him for a moment. 
And so what the author is saying is he's saying, learn from Esau. Don't let that root of bitterness, of unbelief grow in your heart where you end up trading eternal life for peace that will be fleeting, that might only last for a short amount of time. And instead, pursue the peace that you need for all eternity, which is not a peace with your fellow human beings, but rather it's a peace with God that only comes through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Seek that peace, he says, and seek to uproot any kind of bitterness and unbelief that may be in your heart. Which brings us to our third and final point, which is the ultimate goal of pursuing peace and holiness. He says, this is the goal here. This is the goal. He says in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So this is our pursuit, not some sort of temporal satisfaction, some sort of temporal pacification of the circumstances in our life, but rather he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, seek those things that are above, that are in Christ. Focus the eyes of your faith upon Christ where he is seated in the heavenly places. There's so often as I'm reading the book of Hebrews, that, yeah, there's sometimes I think Paul may have been its author, but there are some other things that lead me to think, no, it's not possible that Paul could be the author. But I'll say this, that whoever preached these words, whoever recorded these words, had to have been in Paul's company. There's just so many themes here, and I want you to listen. You know, the author says in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 14. It's a more fulsome statement, I think, of the principles set forth here. Bless those who persecute you. That, I think, is what is in mind when he says strive for peace. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. So in the face of their persecution, he's saying, don't pursue that bowl of lentil stew. Don't pursue that fleeting peace, but rather pursue the peace that only comes through the gospel. That means even bless those who persecute you. That means do not curse them, but bless them. Share the message of hope with them. Seek to live at peace with them. He's not saying it's their fault. But to put this in Christ's words, he's saying turn the other cheek. And in turning the other cheek, maybe they begin to see the light of the gospel and they cease to persecute you as you share the truth of the gospel with them through your conduct. But it's the second half that sometimes I think people misunderstand. And when I say people, I mean not only people in the pew, but sometimes people in the pulpit. When he says, when the author says, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, all of a sudden... We think, what? We have to have holiness? 
Really? Where do I get it? I better start working on it. I better start saving up. I better start trying extra hard to make sure that I'm extra godly because I know that if the Lord requires holiness, that the only way that I'm going to be able to please him is if I work really hard. But let's remember, let's not, in a moment of panic, overturn and forget everything that has gone before in the book of Hebrews. Within the immediate context of Hebrews, we have to remember the source of our holiness. Who is the source of our holiness but Jesus Christ? The author is not saying, grab yourself up by your moral bootstraps and pull hard. He's saying, look to Christ by faith alone, by God's grace alone. This is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Look to Christ, trust in his saving work, and it's through trusting in him that you will receive his holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And so we have to recognize that when the author here calls them for that, to, to possess that holiness, it's another way of saying, look to Christ by faith. And so he's saying, in not so many words, don't fall away, don't disbelieve, Don't abandon the gospel so that the root of bitterness grows up in your heart and it leads to immorality and judgment. But on the other hand, don't think that you can achieve this holiness by your own good works, which would be in effect to abandon the gospel and to seek to save ourselves by our own good works rather than the good works of Jesus Christ. Both are serious errors and we have to avoid them at all costs. But what he's saying here is that the only way that we will see God is by seeking holiness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Or, again, to put this in Paul's terms, this is why I think, again, the, the, the author of Hebrews had to be within the Pauline circle. Ephesians 2, 8 and following, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christ is the fount of our salvation, of our righteousness, of our holiness, and all of God's grace in our salvation. And so this is why the author is once again telling his, his, his readers, he's telling his listeners, don't turn away from Christ, from your only hope. Or if I can change keys to the Johannine key. John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and following. Listen carefully how to this too, I think, traces the same line of thought as the author of Hebrews here when he says, holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He said, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, that is when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he himself is pure. In other words, we purify ourselves simply by looking by faith through God's grace to Christ to he who is pure. This is why ultimately the author is saying, don't turn away from Christ. Your only source of holiness is in him. And the only way that you will stand in the presence of God is by clinging fast to Christ. So in the face of 
trials and persecution and troubles and chaos and when things don't go right, or at least they seemingly don't go right in our estimation, we have to continue to look to Jesus by faith. You know, if we fear that the seeds of unbelief might be sprouting in our hearts, this is where we have to flee to Christ all the more. When doubts come knocking at your door, send faith in Christ to the door to answer. Only a God-given faith in Christ, fed by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, can extinguish your doubts and whatever unbelief there might be, and especially whatever idols may be lurking in your hearts. It's only the gift of faith that can give us the assurance that in the end, we will see God face to face in the face of Christ because of Christ's imputed righteousness and holiness. Beloved in Christ, may we learn from Esau and may we cling fast to Christ that he would uproot and tear out every root of bitterness in our hearts. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we give thanks for the promises of salvation that come to us only through Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would, in the face of our doubts and even moments where we begin to question your promises, that you would cause us to flee to your Son, the only one in whom we can find salvation. We pray that by your Spirit and through your Word, you would purge out those dark clouds of unholy questions and doubts and fears. Oh Lord, sometimes it seems as if you bring suffering and difficulties into our lives so much so that it almost seems as if it will break us. But we know, O oh Lord, that you will not abandon us nor forsake us, that you will not test us beyond what you will sustain us through that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you would enable us to do so, whether it is in the face of sickness and prolonged illness, whether it is in the face of political chaos and turmoil in this world, whether it is in the face of war or famine or persecution, O oh Lord. We pray that you would strengthen us that you would give unto us a resilient faith that in the face of adversity would not wither, but rather would thrive and would grow. We pray, O Lord, that you would give unto us a desire and a zeal to share the truth of the gospel with others, that as we see others suffering, that we would impart words of life, that we would impart words of comfort, and when necessary, O Lord, even correction. Strengthen us, we pray. Sanctify us in the holy image of Christ. Give unto us greater faith, greater courage, greater hope that we might in our weakness shine forth your glory all the more to this sin-darkened world around us. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.